For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so we're getting to the end of Acts. There's only a a few chapters left, but there's plenty of action here. Last week, we were following the life of the Apostle Paul, and he had come to Jerusalem with an offering for the poor there. But while he was in Jerusalem, he went to take part in a purification ceremony in the temple that some of the other Christians talked him into. And while he was there, a riot ensued, a mob tried to get him, the Roman soldiers protected him, and they took him away, and they are holding him custody here in the fortress of Antonia under a lot of soldiers. And so Paul is there, and we we saw that he may be at one of the lowest points in his life as he sees the, um, the state of the Jerusalem church, as he's attacked by his own people in the very temple of God. And we saw, we ended last week on this verse, Acts 23, 11, the Lord appeared to Paul personally, and he said, Paul, be encouraged. Just as you've been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. That's a pretty important promise for Paul, who's going to go through some severe trials, who's going to have to stand before some of the most powerful men in the world in the the weeks and years to come. And he knows that he's invincible here. In Israel, he is invincible because God has promised him, I'm going to take you to Rome as well, and you're going to testify there. You know, when Paul was called as a Christian, he said, you're going to testify to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, kings and governors and some of the most powerful people in the world. Imagine getting that when you become a Christian, a vision from God that says, you're going to testify before presidents and prime ministers and dictators. It'd be a little ominous, a little, a little intimidating, but that's what Paul had. And here he has a promise from Jesus. This is not the end, Paul. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to see you through. So he gets this promise from Jesus, and then the very next verse, it says, the next morning, a group of Jews got together and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. So they put themselves on the kill Paul diet. (laughs) There were more than 40 of them in the conspiracy. These guys wanted Paul dead. They went to the leading priests and elders, and they told them, Look, guys, we bound ourselves with an oath to eat nothing until we've killed Paul. There's nothing, nothing we can do about it at this point. So you and the high council should ask the commander to bring Paul back to the council again. Pretend that you want to examine his case more fully. I don't know. Make up something. We'll kill him on the way. And since apparently it's from the fortress of Antonia, either to the temple or to the little meeting space on the far left corner there, they're going to kill him on the way. But Paul's nephew, his sister's son, heard of their plan. Isn't that interesting? For the first time and only time we learn about Paul's family. He had a sister living in Jerusalem. She had a nephew. How old was this guy? It seems like he's kind of a young, a young boy. Um, the word is a little ambiguous what it means, but it says he heard about the plan and he went to the fortress and he told Paul. So Paul had visitation rights. Remember, he wasn't even convicted of anything yet. So he tells Paul about this plan. So Paul called one of the Roman officers and he said, take this young man to the commander. He has something important to tell him. Doesn't want anybody to know about this. So the officer did, explaining, look, Paul the prisoner called me over and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. So the commander took his hand and he led him aside and he asked, what is it you want to tell me? 
Paul's nephew told him, look, some Jews are going to ask you to bring Paul before the high council tomorrow. They're pretending they want more information, but don't do it. There are more than 40 men hiding along the way, ready to ambush him. They vowed not to eat or drink anything until they killed him. They're ready now. They're just waiting for your consent. Oh, this is Claudius Lysias, the commander. He says, don't let anyone know you told me this. The commander warned the young man. See, the commander knows things are tense in Jerusalem. He, they're so tense. In fact, there's going to be a huge Jewish revolt less than a decade from now. There are already assassins sneaking into the temple and killing high-profile people. This guy's a Roman citizen. He knows he has to protect Paul. And the commander ordered two of his officers, two centurions, and he ordered, get 200 soldiers ready to leave for Caesarea at 9 o'clock tonight. Take 200 spearmen, 70 mounted troops. And so here there's these 40 guys who have taken an oath to kill Paul. The Roman commander counters with 470 troops. 70 of them on horses. Provide horses for Paul to ride and get him safely up the coast to Governor Felix at Caesarea. And then he wrote this letter to the governor. And here's the letter. Luke got a copy of it and he copied right into his, into his uh, the book of Acts. He says, this is from Claudius Lysias to His Excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by some Jews, and they were about to kill him when I arrived with the troops. When I learned that he was a Roman citizen, I removed him to safety. I definitely did not almost flog him. <laughs> In case anyone asks. I'm the hero in this story. And then I took him to their high council to learn the basis of the accusations against him. And I soon discovered the charge was something regarding their religious law. Certainly nothing worthy of imprisonment or death. Remember, Lysias, he's tried three different times to find out what do they have against Paul. He still can't figure it out. He still hasn't. He has to send him on without any charges. But when I was informed of a plot to kill him, I immediately sent him on to you. I told his accusers to bring their charges before you. And so it says that night, as ordered, at 9 p.m., the soldiers took Paul as far as Antipatris, close to 40 miles, that night. They returned to the fortress the next morning while the mounted troops took him on to Caesarea. So he gets an escort of 470 until he's well outside of Jerusalem, through some pretty dangerous passes, actually. And then from there, the mounted troops take him the rest of the way to Caesarea, up the coast. When they arrived in Caesarea, they presented Paul and the letter to Governor Felix, and he read it. And then he asked Paul, what province are you from? Cilicia, Paul answered, up in Turkey. Hmm, I wonder if he was hoping he could pass him off like, like Jesus kind of got passed back and forth at his trial. He says, uh, I'll hear your case myself when your accusers arrive, the governor told him. And then the governor ordered him kept in the prison at Herod's headquarters. And so Paul at Caesarea, this magnificent city built by Herod the Great on the coast of the Mediterranean. Here's an artist's rendition of what this probably would have looked like. Paul would have been kept here, near Herod's, well, near, near the palace that Herod had built originally. You know, you, you can actually, if you go to Israel today, you can see the remarkable remains of this. They, Israel's turned this into a national park. 
And you can see the Roman ruins. There's this magnificent aqueduct coming down the coast that fed water to this city. This is where the Roman governors spent most of their time. They would go to Jerusalem for the festivals, but they spent most of their time here. And it's at Caesarea where Luke is going to narrate three trials for us in the next three chapters. And in these hearings, Paul is going to face three of the most powerful men in this part of the world, as well as two of the most powerful women, two of their wives in this part of the world. And so we're going to see Paul on trial here at Caesarea. Last week he was on trial in Jerusalem before the Jews. This week he's on trial in Caesarea before the Romans. And his first one he stands before is this guy, Governor Antonius Felix. This guy ruled Judea from 52 to 58 or 59 AD. He was a freed slave of Emperor Claudius. And so he, he was a, friends with Claudius, apparently grew up with him, was freed by him, and rose to a position of some prominence. Unfortunately, he was cruel, corrupt, and unpopular. Most historians think that he did more than anybody of the Roman rulers during this time to drive the Jewish people toward revolt. Tacitus said, Felix exercised the power of a king with the mind of a slave. And so he didn't have a real high view of Felix. Well, here's the remains of Caesarea where all this takes place. I'm just going to leave it on the screen so we remember where, they, where we are here. It says, five days later, Ananias, the high priest, arrived with some of the Jewish elders and the lawyer, Tertullus, to present their case against Paul to the governor. So they bring in this big shot lawyer, this orator, who's going to make this persuasive case and get Paul transferred back into their hands. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented the charges against Paul in the following address to the governor. You have provided a long period of peace for us Jews and with foresight have enacted reforms for us. For all of this, Your Excellency Felix, we are very grateful to you. Well, none of that was true, actually. <laughs> He's sort of buttering him up. He's trying to get on his good side. Sort of expected with a speech back then. He says, but look, I don't want to bore you. So please, just give me your attention for only a moment. We found this man to be a troublemaker, constantly stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. First charge, riot causer. He's a ringleader of the cult known as the Nazarene. Second charge, cult leader. He's, he's leading this illegal religion. Furthermore, he's trying to desecrate the temple when we arrested him. Third charge, temple desecrator. Rome didn't like any of these things. He's using the language that would get Felix to just go ahead and say, yeah, fine, he'll sign, sign on the dotted line, hand him back over so he can be executed. He says, you can find out the truth of our accusations by examining him yourself. And then the other Jews chimed in, declaring that everything Tertullus said was true. Well, and then the governor motioned for Paul to speak. Paul said, I know, sir, that you have been a judge of Jewish affairs for many years, so I gladly present my defense before you. You can quickly discover that I arrived in Jerusalem no more than 12 days ago to worship at the temple. This is a very quick sequence of events here. My accusers never found me arguing with anyone in the temple, nor stirring up a riot in the synagogue or in the streets of the city. I am not a riot causer, he says, to answer that first charge, and these guys never saw me start a riot. They cannot prove the things they accuse me of doing. He says, I will confess, though, I follow the way. That's what Christians called themselves back then. Which they call a cult. But he says, I'm no cult leader. Look, this way, this is, he says, I worship the God of our ancestors. 
I firmly believe the Jewish law and everything written by the prophets. There's nothing new here. Judaism was accepted as a legal religion by the Romans. But they really wanted people doing the Roman religion and emperor worship. So you had to get special permission to start your own religion. They're trying to paint Paul as this new thing. He's trying to say, look, I should be legally protected under the protections afforded to Judaism. This is not a new cult. This is not some heresy. He says, I believe the Jewish law, everything written in the prophets, the same God of the Old Testament, the same scriptures in the Old Testament. I have the same hope in God that these men have, that he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. Yeah, death is not the end. I hope you realize that. No matter what you believe, everyone will be resurrected. And there's two types of people at resurrection. There's two resurrections. There's one where people who've put their faith in Jesus Christ... That's one kind of person, and they're considered righteous. Not because they never did anything wrong, but because Christ never did anything wrong. And because he took their punishment, and can, they can be declared innocent. But he says a lot of other people are going to be resurrected too. The unrighteous. The people who are going to have to answer for their own lives to the God of the universe. And they're going to have to answer why they did not live a perfect life like he demands. He says, look, that's what I believe in. That's the hope that we have. This is the hope when we face death that the, the grave is not the end. That if our faith is in Christ, we can live on to eternal life. He says, so because of this, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and all people. Well, after several years away, I returned to Jerusalem with money to aid my people and to offer sacrifices to God. I had money for the poor. That's why I came back. And my accusers saw me in the temple as I was completing a purification ceremony. To answer your third charge, I was not defiling the temple. I was in a purification ceremony at the temple. And there was no crowd. There was no rioting. But then there were some Jews from the providence of Asia there. And he says, you know what? Come to think of it. Shouldn't they be here to bring charges if they have anything against me? Rome took very seriously the crime of leveling charges and then not showing up to court to back up those charges. You could get in big trouble for that. And he says, hold on now, shouldn't they be here if this is the charge that they're going to bring? Ask these men what crime the Jewish high council found me guilty of. The only thing they can testify to is there's this one time when I shouted out, I'm on trial today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's what caused the, the Sanhedrin to erupt last week, remember? And so Paul's saying, look, this is not a legal matter involving Roman courts. This is a theological matter. And so it shouldn't be here. He shouldn't be tried here before Felix. Well, at that point, Felix, who was quite familiar with the way. He'd been around for five or so years at this point. He's about 57 AD. He'd heard about these Christians. He was familiar. He adjourned the hearing. And he said... Let's just wait till Lysias, the garrison commander, arrives. Then I will decide the case. Remember, he already had Lysias' testimony. He knows it directly contradicted what that Tertullus guy said. That it wasn't the Jews who arrested him. It was the Romans who arrested him, and they had jurisdiction. So he says, let's just wait, okay? He ordered an officer to keep Paul in custody, but to give him some freedom and allow his friends to visit him and take care of his needs. So it was a really loose jail term here. You know, he's on the Mediterranean coast. He can hear the waves lapping on the shore. Yeah, he's locked up. There's an officer there, but he's allowed to have company. And in fact, this goes on for this way for quite some time. 
A few days later, though, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. So he's married to this Jewish woman named Drusilla. Let's talk a little bit about her. She was the third wife of Felix. He had stolen her away from her previous husband, unrighteously. But Drusilla has an interesting history. She's part of a very important family who has real intimate dealings with Jesus Christ. First of all, her great-grandfather was a guy named Herod the Great. This was the guy who built Caesarea. This was the guy who, when Jesus was born, he killed all the babies in Bethlehem. This was the guy who interacted with the wise men when Jesus was born. And so Herod the Great, her great-grandfather, got a very clear shot at hearing about the Savior. He rejected it. Her great-uncle, Herod Antipas, we read about him at the end of the Gospel accounts. He was the Herod who kept hearing about Jesus throughout his life. And then when Jesus was on trial before Pilate, Pilate sent him to Antipas. And Antipas was like, hey, why don't you do a trick for me? And Jesus was just like, no. <laughs> He's like, you bore me, get out of here. And they mocked him. So her great-uncle, Herod Antipas, also got to meet Jesus Christ the very morning he was crucified. Rejected him. Her dad, Agrippa I, would have grown up hearing about Jesus. He was the Herod, we read about in Acts chapter 12. The one who killed James Ebedee. The one who tried to kill Peter. The one who got eaten by the worms. Remember him? Because he accepted the praise of men. Well, he obviously did not receive Christ either. And finally, his daughter, Drusilla, is here now. And she also gets to meet the Apostle Paul and hear about Jesus. Now, Drusilla is pretty interesting. One of the things about her is she was renowned far and wide for her great beauty. Josephus says Drusilla did indeed exceed all other women in beauty. So she was like the, the Giselle Bunchen of the first century AD, right? She was like the hottest girl around and everybody knew it. And so here we have Felix, this powerful man. He's got his hot wife. She's only 19 at the time, okay? Um, <clears throat> And uh, he's already stolen her away from her first husband. So, these are the, this is the couple who's coming to meet with Paul. Well, they sent for Paul and they listened as he told them about faith in Jesus Christ. So he told them about what it means to put your trust in Christ, what Jesus taught. As he reasoned with them, so he's reasoning. Remember, Paul's always reasoning, persuading. He reasoned with them about three things. First of all, righteousness. Talking about the perfection and majesty of God and how far short we fall. He's talking about self-control. So with righteousness, the implication is that you, you sin. You fall short of the mark. And you can't control yourself, Felix. You keep on sinning. You've done so many terrible things in your life. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only answer here. The, I can't believe the boldness from Paul. I guess he had that promise from Christ. He also told Felix about the coming day of judgment. That's not something you really want to hear. When you're powerful in this life, you like to think you can get away with anything. You don't like to hear that there's a much higher court, a much higher king, who you're going to have to answer to someday. And as a result, Felix became frightened. He started to get terrified of this message. You know, the... 
The gospel is the good news, but there's bad news associated with it. The bad news is that you have fallen short of God's righteous standard. There's a day of judgment coming. You're going to have to pay if you don't get forgiveness. The good news is forgiveness is available free of charge, but some people are so freaked out by the bad news, they can't even think straight about the good news. So he became very frightened. And so what does he do? Does he put his faith in Christ? He said, go away for now. Um, yeah, when it's more convenient, I'll call for you again. I'm very busy right now. I've got things I need to attend to. And so let's talk later. Isn't that interesting? Well, he also hoped Paul would bribe him. Remember that money Paul talked about he brought to Jerusalem? He's thinking, maybe this guy's got a little of that money left. So he sent for Paul quite often and talked with him, hoping he'd get a bribe. So he got plenty of conversations with Paul over the course of his time there. And it says two years went by in this way. Paul just sitting in this, this cell. And after that time, Felix was succeeded by a guy named Portius Thestus, who we'll talk about in a minute. And because Felix wanted to gain favor with the Jewish people, he left Paul in prison. He never did anything with Paul's case, his legal case, or with his case for Christ. He did nothing. And so Felix, in summary, heard the message but was frightened. He put it off until a more convenient time. Instead of pursuing the truth, he tried to get some more money and job security. So often the case with the rich and powerful and famous, they might sense there's something to this, and yet they just put it off. They usually have the power to surround themselves with protection. And so even on the inside, he's frightened. On the outside, he's the one telling Paul to go away. He's also the one looking for a bribe. He's looking for money. He's leaving Paul there for job security. But in the end, he got neither more money nor job security as a result of Paul. The truth is that he was fired in 58 AD because of extreme complaints from the Jews. He would have been executed, but his brother interceded for him with Nero, who's emperor at this time. He lost his wife and his son in August 24, 79 AD. How do we know the exact date of their death? Well, because she moved to this little town called Pompeii. And that's when Vesuvius erupted. And so here we have the most beautiful woman in the world encrusted under layers of ash. Her beauty was unable to save her. Her power was unable to save her. And eventually he lost his own life. And so he came to the end of his life and like the scriptures say, naked we come into this world and naked we leave. None of the money, none of the clout with the Jews. He wanted a bribe from Paul, and Christ was offering him an eternal riches. And he turned that down for a bribe that he never got and that could never last. He was offered the favor of God, the grace of God, and he turned it down, hoping for the favor of the fickle religious leaders of that day. How foolish to put this off. There's never going to be a convenient time. God is not a God of convenience. He's the God of heaven and earth. He's your creator. He's the judge. He's the one who loves you and sent his son. And he calls you to put your faith in Christ. 
then he calls you to live for him. Felix, what a disappointment. He was succeeded by Governor Portius Festus. Festus ruled from 59 to 62 AD. He was actually a lot more competent than Felix, but he had some work to do after Felix's disastrous term of office. And so it's no surprise that Acts 25.1 tells us three days after Festus arrived in Caesarea to take over his new responsibilities, he left for Jerusalem. And before we move on, let's just, let's think for a moment. Paul's just had two years locked up at Caesarea. On the one hand, this guy is the most prolific church planner ever. Here he's locked up. But on the other hand, think about what happened during this time. Luke was with him. Luke was able to travel back and forth between Jerusalem and Caesarea. He could interview eyewitnesses about the, about the life of Christ, about the early church. I've got a lot of plans for the book of Luke and Acts came together during this time. And so God knew what he was doing. And this was a whole lot better than anything Paul could have done traveling around planting churches probably, writing Luke and Acts, which we, we spent like a year and a half studying these books, haven't we? He was there two years, we spent a year and a half studying him. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> Hopefully it hasn't felt like a prison sentence to you all. <laughs> but the two years comes to an end and Festus takes over and he leaves immediately for Jerusalem. As soon as he gets there, three days. Travels down, he knows he's got to get in with the powerful, the opinion makers. He's got to form some alliances. He's got some, some making up for bad decisions to do. And Felix Festus, by the way, the way I remember him is alphabetical order. Felix comes first, Festus comes second. Anyway. <clears throat> he went to Jerusalem where the leading priests and other Jewish leaders met with him. And what's the first thing they do? They begin making accusations against Paul. They've got their list of things to do when Festus comes. One, kill Paul. <laughs> remember those 40 guys that said they wouldn't eat or drink until they killed Paul? <laughs> It's been two years. <laughs> they probably had a little something to eat by now. They asked Festus a favor to transfer Paul to Jerusalem. They're like, how about a little favor to get things off on the right foot? Let's just move that prisoner down here. And they were going to ambush him and kill him on the way. But Festus replied, well, Paul's at Caesarea and he himself would be returning there soon. And those of you in authority can return with me. And if Paul's done anything wrong, you can make your accusations. Well, about eight or ten days later, Festus returned to Caesarea. And on the following day, he took his seat in court and ordered that Paul be brought in. So we're like less than two weeks into Festus's reign here in Judea. And here he's got Paul and the, the religious leaders sitting in his court. When Paul arrived, the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem gathered around and they made many serious accusations they couldn't prove. We've heard all this before. And Paul denied the charges. We've heard that before. And he's like, I'm not guilty of any crime against the Jewish laws or the temple or the Roman government, he said. And then Festus, wanting to do the Jews that favor, he said, Paul, let me just throw this out there. What do you think about going to Jerusalem and standing trial before me there. Well, Paul knows this is, this is basically walking into his own death. And he said, no, 
This is the official Roman court, so I ought to be tried right here. He knows the laws. You know very well I'm not guilty of harming the Jews. If I've done something worthy of death, look, I don't refuse to die, but I'm innocent. And no one has a right to turn me over to these men to kill me. And then Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. This was the best perk about being a Roman citizen. I guess the not getting flogged part was really good too. <laughs> as we saw last week. But this right here, any Roman citizen could say, I don't like the way things are heading in this biased local court. I'd like to go to Rome and be tried there by that biased local court. <laughs> well, Festus is like, oh. So he goes over, he's talking to his advice, like, what just happened? Is he allowed to do that? What do I do now? my second week on the job. <laughs> and I got to deal with this. And he said, very well, you've appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you will go. Well, a few days later, King Agrippa arrived with his sister Bernice to pay their respects to Festus, new governor. King Agrippa comes in. He's the king of an area kind of up by the Sea of Galilee and even northeast of there. These guys, speaking of the family of Herod the Great, were the brother and sister of Drusilla. They were, the, they were a son and daughter of Agrippa I, Bernice and Agrippa II. Now, Bernice was also an interesting lady. Josephus says, Drusilla was very ill-treated by Bernice because of Drusilla's beauty. So this is, you're growing up, you're the sister of Giselle Bunchen. <laughs> and you don't look like her. You don't like her. So she had married a guy when she was like 15, and then she married her uncle Herod. And then there was this really weird thing that everybody was talking about with her brother, Agrippa II, that they were always together and they probably had some romantic thing going. And so then she married this other guy and then she left him and then she had this thing with General Titus who destroyed Jerusalem. And then he sent her away. And so she, you know, she really, she'd been around. <laughs> This whole family was really dysfunctional. I mean, she, she's forced to marry her uncle and then she has a thing with her brother and then, yeah. So anyway, these two show up. Agrippa, King Agrippa and his sister, Bernice. And during their stay, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He says, look, there's a prisoner here whose case was left for me by Felix. This is kind of Felix's fault. When I was in Jerusalem, the leading priests and Jewish elders, they, they pressed charges against him and asked me to condemn him. It's kind of their fault too. And I, I pointed out to them that Roman law doesn't convict people without a trial. 
They've got to be given an opportunity to confront their accusers and defend themselves. And when his accusers, they came here for the trial. I didn't delay. I'm not one to just stretch things out for two years like some governors. <laughs> I called the case the very next day. I ordered Paul brought in. But the accusations made against him, they weren't for any of the crimes I expected. Instead, it was something about their religion and this dead man named Jesus who Paul insists is alive. You can see Festus, he's just confused. <laughs> it doesn't really seem like he's trying that hard to understand. He's more worried about his career. Well, I was at a loss to know how to investigate these things. So I asked this guy whether he'd be willing to stand trial on these charges in Jerusalem. And the next thing you know, Paul appealed to have his case decided by the emperor. So it's kind of Paul's fault, too, that I'm in this bind. And so I just ordered that he be held in custody so I could arrange to send him to Caesar. Well, I'd like to hear the man myself, Agrippa said. I don't know how many stories he'd heard from his great uncle or his dad or his great grandfather about this Jesus, but now here's finally his chance to hear it firsthand. And Festus replied, oh, you will, tomorrow. <laughs> I think he's kind of hoping when he writes his report to Caesar, that he can also say, I also conferred with Herod Agrippa II, and here's what he thought. So I'm not completely incompetent that I'm sending a guy to Rome and I still don't know what he did. Well, the next day, Agrippa and Bernice arrived at the auditorium with great pomp and circumstance, no doubt. They were accompanied by military officers, Prominent men of the city, they were rolling out the red carpet. The photographers were there. You had Ryan Seacrest over here interviewing people. It was quite the event. So Festus then orders that Paul be brought in. And then Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are here, this is the man whose death is demanded by all the Jews, both here and in Jerusalem. But in my opinion, he's done nothing deserving death. However, since he appealed his case to the emperor, I've decided to send him to Rome. You can see Luke is making his points. Paul's done nothing wrong. If this is a legal brief for Paul's trial in Rome, Paul's looking pretty good. But Festus says, I've decided to send him to Rome. But what shall I write to the emperor? For there's no clear charge against him, and... So I've brought him before all of you, and especially you, Agrippa, so that after we examine him, I might have something to write. He's like, Nero doesn't really like it when you send prisoners with no charges all the way across the Roman Empire to take up his time. Nero's going to be like, what is Festus doing down there? For it makes no sense to send a prisoner to the emperor without specifying the charges against him. So in Acts 26, Agrippa said to Paul, you may speak in your defense. So Paul, gesturing with his hand, he did the right rhetorical gesture, you start your speech, started his defense. And this is Paul's longest speech in Acts, by the way. 
He says, I'm fortunate, King Agrippa, that you're the one hearing my defense today against all these accusations made by the Jewish leaders. I know you're an expert on all Jewish customs and controversies. He's got a little more confidence that Agrippa is going to track what he's saying and not be confused like Festus. Now, please, just listen to me patiently. You've got to let me finish. As the Jewish leaders are well aware, I was given a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood among my own people and in Jerusalem. If they would admit it, they know I've been a member of the Pharisees, the strictest sect of our religion. And now I'm on trial because of my hope in the fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors. In fact, that's why the 12 tribes of Israel zealously worship God night and day. They have the same hope I have. Yet, Your Majesty, they accuse me for having this hope. So Paul keeps putting the focus back where it belongs, that this is a theological debate. They don't like the gospel. They don't like what I'm bringing about Jesus being the fulfillment of the scriptures. And that's really the only issue here. They're angry and rejecting Christ. He says, why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? Yeah, some people are against miracles, but if you really think about it, if there's really a God who created all this, why can't he do something as small as a miracle? Well, I used to believe I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. I was authorized by the leading priests, and I caused many believers there to be sent to prison. I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. This is one of the best pieces of evidence that Paul was on the Sanhedrin even though he was pretty young at the time. And, by the way, the Sanhedrin was not supposed to condemn people to death, and so is this Paul sort of calling out the Sanhedrin for killing people in front of the Roman authorities? I don't know. He says, you know, many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them, I even chased them down in foreign cities. One day I was on such a mission to Damascus, armed with the authority and commission of the leading priests. And about noon, your majesty, as I was on the road, a light from heaven brighter than the sun shone down on me and my companions. And we all fell down and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's useless for you to kick against the goads. The goats were these pointed sticks they would put behind the ox. Sometimes the ox didn't want to do what you told them to, and so they'd kick back. And the goats basically were intended to, if you kick, you get hurt. If you resist, it hurts. And he says, Paul, it's pointless to resist. Who are you, Lord? I asked. And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get on your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and my witness. Tell people you've seen me. Tell them what I will show you in the future as well. And I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Isn't that what we see here in this story tonight? God fulfilling that promise. This is one of the reasons why he was able to have such boldness. Because he knew God had chosen him. God had given him a message and God had promised to protect him as long as Paul still had a race to run. And you know what? We can have boldness for the same reasons. 
If you're a Christian, God has called you. He's given you a message. And he promises to protect you until your race is over. And you get to go and be with him. God says, yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Yes, we bring a message of light in the darkness. And then they'll receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. Yes, turning to Christ, putting your faith in Him. You're given forgiveness. You're given a place among God's people that can be never taken away. You're set apart. And so, King Agrippa, I obeyed that vision from heaven. What was I supposed to do? When you get a vision from heaven, a commissioning from God... I preach to those in Damascus, then Jerusalem, and then through all Judea and also to the Gentiles, that all must repent and turn to God and prove they've changed by the good things that they do. Yes, it produces a, a changed life. Well, some Jews arrested me in the temple for preaching this, and they tried to kill me. But God has protected me right up to this present time, so I can testify to everyone, from the least to the greatest, like you guys. Festus, Agrippa. He says, I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen. He's like, look, I'm just straight out of the scriptures. This was all predicted long beforehand. What did they predict, first of all? That the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead. Agrippa, he says, surely you've heard of the prophets. Perhaps you've read Isaiah 53, where Isaiah writes 700 years before the time of Christ unjustly condemned, this guy will be led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. Yes, that the Messiah would be killed, not for his own guilt, but for our guilt. He was buried like a criminal, but put in a rich man's grave. He says, Isaiah predicted it. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. Crucified as a criminal, buried in a wealthy man's tomb, and it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. So on the one hand, he's being crushed. He's suffering. He's dying. And that's God's will. But on the other hand, it's pleasing to God because he's making his life an offering for sin. And even though he dies... He's going to see his offspring and prolong his days. Resurrection. And Paul says, the prophets say Messiah will suffer and be the first to rise from the dead. Many others will rise like him. He also says, this Messiah would announce God's light to the Jews and Gentiles alike, just like was predicted in the Old Testament. Again, Isaiah. God says, I'll hold you by the hand and watch over you and I'll appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, that this is for more than just the Jews. He says, you're going to open the blind eyes. You're going to bring prisoners out from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. And before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. God says, the reason I predicted things in the past is so you'll know that what I'm saying now is true. And the reason I'm predicting the future it's because when it happens, you'll know that it's from me. And you'll know this message is from me. I am the God of history, he says. 
I'm the only one who can tell the future. And this is how God has authenticated his message. And Paul is persuading, he's reasoning from the scriptures here with Agrippa. Well, he's in the middle of this and suddenly Festus shouts out, Paul, you're insane. Too much study has made you crazy. <laughs> and Paul's like, you know, he had a thing going here, right? But Paul replied, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is the sober truth. But anyway, <laughs> King Agrippa, you know about these things. I speak boldly, for I am sure these events are familiar to him. They were not down in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And then Agrippa interrupts him. He says, you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? This question is a little hard to interpret, actually. The Greek literally says, in few you're persuading me to become Christian. And so is this sincere or sarcastic? You know, is he saying, boy, you're pretty persuasive. You're, you've almost persuaded me to become a Christian. Or is he saying, I think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly, in so little time or with so few arguments. So he's either just brushing Paul off or he's like, maybe almost a Christian. Although almost a Christian is still not good enough, right? It's like saying, my parachute almost opened. <laughs> <laughs> but at this point, Paul backs off. He says, well, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am. Well, except for these chains. <laughs> <laughs> and then the king, the governor, Bernice, and all the others stood and left. And as they went out, they talked it over, and they agreed, this man hasn't done anything to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, you know, he could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. And Festus is like, oh, I knew it. <laughs> And that's the end of our story for tonight. Let's just draw a few conclusions. First of all, what we saw here is that Paul went through trials. But he didn't shrink back. He used those trials as an opportunity to testify, as an opportunity to witness. We don't just write people off and assume they won't be interested. We don't just put our head down and try to survive. I guess he did that at times. You know, he knew these Jewish leaders weren't interested. He just had to get out of there. They rejected it. But with each of these powerful men and women, he's presenting his case. He's trying to persuade. He's seeing, is there any interest here? He also knew that God was going to protect him. That God was going to keep him safe. And that gave him a boldness. The other thing is that the responses that Paul gets are pretty typical. First of all, you have Felix. Felix's response, he was frightened. He must have sensed that this message was true enough to be scared. But what does he do about it? Eh, he decided to wait for a more convenient time. He had some money to pursue and some alliances to secure. And before you knew it, there never was a convenient time. And his life was over. 
Don't be guilty of the Felix mistake, waiting for a more convenient time. You should especially be careful if you're kind of like Felix, if you've got a lot going for you. People who are wealthy, people who have a lot going for them, it's pretty hard to say yes to God. There's also Festus, his response. He didn't really even try to understand the message. And he dismissed it as crazy talk. And I don't want you to be guilty of the Festus mistake either. Dim awareness, dismissing it after a few sound bites, not really thinking it through. You know, you're going to have to answer God someday. Everyone in this room is going to have to say, I heard at least once that night. You've heard it. Will you dismiss it as crazy talk or will you look further into it? And finally, Agrippa, he saw where the evidence was leading. He'd been raised in a family that many of them had heard about Christ. He may have even been close to believing and yet almost isn't good enough. He dismissed the witness, got up and walked out of the courtroom. And I don't want any of you to make the Agrippa mistake either where you see it's headed somewhere and you just walk the other way. The only other response that we need to worry about now is how will you respond to the message of Christ? You've heard Paul's testimony. You've heard the testimony of Isaiah. You've seen the teachings of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Luke, maybe, throughout the book of Acts. Now how will you respond? You're going to wait till a more convenient time? Got some other things to pursue? You're going to dismiss it as crazy talk and move on? Are you thinking, maybe this is headed somewhere, but you're just going to walk away? Or will you put your faith in Jesus Christ and receive forgiveness of sins and be transferred from light to darkness, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God, to be joined to the people of God and ushered into an inheritance that will last forever? That's your choice tonight. Yeah, Lord, thanks for this message of forgiveness. I pray for anyone here tonight that they would not make the mistakes of some of these powerful men and women that we read about in this passage, putting you off till a more convenient time, checking out mentally, and dismissing it as crazy, or just walking away um, and not really taking the time to investigate. Thank you that you promise to protect us as your kids, Lord as long as you still have a race for us to run. Thanks that you give us a message, and I pray that as Christians here, we can declare that boldly. And I'm, I'm thankful for your love. That you've transferred us from darkness to light, and from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.